So wouldn't, um, you know, you uh, recently wrote a piece in the Feminism and Religion blog, uh, which got this conversation between you and I going, and um, it was about the loss of the commons, um, which left me wondering um, if loss of the protection of the commons ties into our loss of protection of the common good. So first, could you explain what you mean by the loss of the commons? And then we'll, you know, we'll backtrack and come back around to how this might affect our sense of the common good a bit. Sure, sure. Um, and as you said, I think it's something that we're not usually taught in school. I didn't learn about this till I was in grad school. So, um, so the commons. Um, is basically um, the notion that the, that there are lands that were open and accessible to anyone, that no one can own the air or the oceans. Um, so also it, in an earlier time, there was the belief that no one could own the land that was all held in common. Um, this is still a belief held by indigenous peoples, certainly of the Americas and other places in the world, who have no concept of ownership of the land, but rather regard the earth as our relation. Um, but specifically, what was meant by the commons in England um, and during feudal times was the the land that was op- that the feudal lords opened up to the peasants for them to graze their livestock and grow food and forage and so on. Um, but in 1773, the British Parliament passed what was called the Act of Enclosure, and that permitted landowners literally to enclose the land with fences and hedgerows, the land that had previously been available in common to all, and the peasants lost their ability to sustain themselves and had to leave the land, and they became the workforce for the Industrial Revolution. If you fly over England, you can see it. It's quite stark. Um, just the the way the the various squares of land are hedged off um, from each other to to enclose those commons. Yeah. So, so that well, yeah, and let me ask you, you, you know, I mean, the commons. So, and you know, we might have a sense of that if we saw movies about Robin Hood, right? Because wasn't it kind <laughs> yeah. of like that? The people weren't able to hunt anymore, and the people were starving. Right. And um, in the you know the the lord of the manor owned everything, and um, you know the people were basically just to, but yet they still had to pay taxes. Um, and right. it really created a problem, and um, and didn't even it, it got so bad that people even left Europe, and uh, maybe that's why some of them came to America to maybe branch out yeah. and um, have the ability to to have land again. Right. Yeah, that was a, a lot of the impulse towards um, colonizing the Americas. Yes. Yeah. And, and and well, and, and did I have it right? Because I'm, you know, I'm, you know, uh, sort of patching pieces uh, together here and different ideas because I haven't had a class on this. But um, I think um, I interviewed a woman quite a while back whose name escapes me. But didn't this lead to capitalism too? Um, I mean, it certainly was part of that. Um, Capitalism was the shift from the feudal system to uh, individual entrepreneurs owning businesses and industries. So it supplied a, a workforce for that. Um, it certainly it is attached to the notion of private property, and private property is um, one of the mainstays of capitalism for sure. Um, before that, there wasn't the concept of private property. And um, if you don't mind my delving into a little bit of political philosophy, which was my main area that I taught for a long time, um, it sure, was the whole the whole notion of private property um, was based legally in the English philosopher John Locke. Um, 
and in many ways he was a, a forerunner of capitalism. I mean, this is this is right in the transition period between feudalism and capitalism in the 1700s. Capitalism t- takes place more towards the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th. But um, so what he wrote was, as much land that a man tills, plants, improves, and I'm quoting him, as much land that a man tills, plants, improves, cultivates, and can use the product of so much as his property. He, by his labor, does, as it were, enclose it from the commons. And he justified this by saying that in doing so, man is fulfilling fulfilling God's commandment to subdue the earth and improve it for the benefit of life. So basically, um, you have the beginning of, um, of entrepreneurship, of cultivating, improving, <laughs> meaning you know, tilling up the land, mining the ore, cutting down forests, and considering that to be your property that you then sell and then create goods. Um, and it's just, you know, we, what was, and that these are now called goods. But this was seen as a good thing. It was the fulfillment of God to be planting, plowing, lumbering, mining, um, to create goods for sale, for profit. Um, so the earth becomes a commodity. It, so, yeah, very much tied into the beginnings of early capitalism that way. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I guess I, I, you know, the reason I thought maybe this is the beginning of capitalism because, you know, you have people who were self-sufficient sustaining themselves and now they have right. to move into the city and find a job, and then they're at the mercy of some employer. And, you know, we all know how that can be. You could almost be an indentured servant, um, you know, if you're making too little. You know, we've all heard about, you know, um, uh, Owen the company store and all of those sorts of ex- the exploitation of people's labor and if somebody owned a big piece of land, then they aren't actually the one that's, um, um, what was, I forget the word he, Locke, used, but uh, commodifying it. You know, he's not producing the stuff himself. He's using other people to, um, uh, you know, to, to make excess goods that he can sell. Um, so I guess maybe... Um, you know, there's still some sense of people working on the land and maybe not being in the cities. Oh, both, both. It was both it, uh, because people lost their, um, because they lost their ability to be on the land. Um, they also went into the cities when factories were just beginning to be built. Yeah, so yeah, it, and it, it and I can't, and I can't help. Um, I can't help but think that the discovery doctrine that the Pope um, started didn't play into this. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, I don't mean to throw you a curve here, but um, no, no, you know when the, was... can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, sure. Um, the doctrine of discovery was a papal bull that was um, proclaimed in 1493. As you'll note, the date was right after Columbus came to the Americas. Um, so it actually was it actually was first written to grant um, basically papal approval and encouragement to Portuguese and Spanish explorers to explore colonize and exploit the lands and the resources and the peoples of Africa. But then it became the main justification and blessing, I suppose you could say, of, of the Pope to explore and and colonize and dominate and devastate the lands and peoples of the Americas. And then Europe, other European countries adopted their own versions of this um, and uh, basically told, gave the impression that it was absolutely right and just and appropriate for Europeans to go to this new land um, that um, and 
to take whatever land, whatever resources they wanted to dominate the people uh, that were already living there. And just by using that same notion that if you improve the land, if you, if you till it, if you plant it, if you cultivate it, then it's yours, um, gave sanction to the growing colonization of the Americas and then of peoples all around the world. Um, Ecofeminist Vandana Shiva has written at length about the ways that the English came and colonized India just as they came and colonized North America, um, which is now mostly what, which is why Canada is still part of, you know, in many ways, the part of the British Empire, as were the America, as was North America, United States, eventually, um, originally part of the British colonies. And so, do I have yeah, it right that I mean, if they, if these explorers found people living there, they they felt justified to take what these people had been living on or being sustained by, because of religion too. I mean, if they weren't Christians, yes. then they didn't um they didn't recognize them uh, or their rights or anything as having any value so um the justification from the pope you know we are superior christianity is superior we have a right to take this from you and use it for our um for our benefit now yes and that they had a god-given duty to improve that was the word that was used always to improve yeah. what they consider to be this is in quotes backward people um and impose yeah. their religion their language their economic systems their systems of government um or to eliminate them altogether um okay. i mean certainly that was the case in in what became the United States was a massive genocide campaign. Um, this should be what taping. we talk about at Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we do in my family. <laughs> so. um, yeah, instead of the sanitized uh, version of, uh, of our history, right. you know, it uh, might be more relevant. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get back to the justification for this enclosure of the commons. Was it just that philosophy of Locke? I mean, it, uh, did, mm-hmm. did, was that the movement, or was there more to it? Well, I mean, yes, that was the main thing, that uh, his words were used to justify that. And again, as I said, it was considered to be fulfilling God's commandment to subdue the earth, that that was there in Genesis, and and so... Um, so that it was fulfilling, fulfilling God's commandment. There was also the notion that you find in Locke that was also widespread, I would think, throughout England at the time, that anything that wasn't quote-unquote improved was considered to be waste. And it is, I hear I'm quoting Locke again. He says, land that is left wholly to nature, that has no improvement of pasturage, tillage, or planting, is called, as indeed it is, waste. And so it's justified, the plowing and the planting and the lumbering is justified to prevent the land from going to waste. Hmm. Uh, and you still see this today. The same Can you justification give us some examples? Used. Um, certainly. Um, mountaintop removal <laughs> uh, to, to get the coal from the mountains. Um, just that the that the mountain just by its own beauty and by the the all the biosphere the all the animals that live there just through its own being is not considered to be worthy of existing. The only thing of worth in it is whatever coal can be found in it and can be mined, and so whole mountain tops in Pennsylvania and West Virginia have been taken off um, because otherwise that mountain is going to waste. Um, Mm. Old growth forests, um, justification for cutting them down. And there certainly have been plenty of movements 
three sitters, um, the Cop City protests going on in, in Georgia uh, to save the old growth tor- forests. But under this mindset that if it's not being used, if it's not being lumbered, if it's not being turned into a commodity, if it's not being sold as a good, if it's not being used to create capital, um, then it's going to waste. Same thing hmm. with um, what happened with the Dust Bowl. Um, I mean, what a tragedy that was. Uh, you have 12 to 16 feet of rich topsoil all throughout the plains of the Americas. But because there was no grain being planted planted on it, although there was plenty of grass growing on it and plenty of buffalo until they were all deliberately killed off, that um, that, that was not seen as worthy in itself because farmers hadn't come in and plowed it and planted their own crops and brought in their own domesticated animals. It was seen as going to waste. And so by the 1930s, there's nothing of the deep-rooted prairie grasses left, and it's been so killed. I mean, the plow was was just a devastating invention for the, the plains that came in and tilled the soil to the point that there was just a few inches left, and it just turned to dust. And now nothing will grow there and if without fertilizer and um, pesticides and herbicides. Um, because the soil has been literally blown away. Um, so those are some examples of the way that so much devastation has been justified in the name of improving it and not letting it go to waste. So this improving it and not letting it go to waste, that lock you know, unleashed upon the world, do we know what inspired mm-hmm. him? You know, Where did it come from? Um, it's a good question. Uh, I think in many ways, all the philosophers that I have read over the years are trying to justify their own point of privilege in the world. Um, you yeah. find that in Aristotle, for example, trying to provide a justification for slavery and why he should be a leisured man as opposed to those he has enslaved. Um, or, or, and in this case, I think you find that people who own property looking for some type of justification as to why they should own it um, and and not have it be just held in common. And so it's a very different notion of um, relationship with the land. As I said, it's just so different from the indigenous peoples of this land who regard it as their relation. Um, you can go back to Genesis and the whole creation story of the fact that that humans were created last puts them in this position of subordinating all the other creatures that have come before and of being commanded to subdue the earth. Whereas hmm. in, in, in indigenous creation stories, it's flipped around that indeed humans are created last, but because of the help and the wisdom of all that have come before. And so it is the duty, if if that's an appropriate word, for humans to learn from all those who have come before, um, not to command them or subdue them, but rather to live in relation and to recognize that they are the last and so they have the least amount of knowledge and need to learn from the plants and animals. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that, uh, well, you know, my brain kind of went there as soon as you said, uh, you know, people were created last. I'm thinking, well, then how did they go to the top of the heap? You know, <laughs> they should be at the yeah. bottom of the heap. 
Um, so, well, then, you know, this really puts into perspective the, in, I, I'm thinking, and you feel free to correct me, this really puts into perspective the incredible feat, I guess, it must have been to create our national parks rather than let these spaces be overrun by development. Yes, yes, that would be quite the change of mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, so I... I is there any more we need to know about that before we, you know, go back around to how this maybe affects our sense of the common good? Um, a few things, yeah. Um, just when when Vandana Shiva talks about the enclosure movement, she takes it much farther saying that the enclosure of the land was just the beginning. Um, and then she talks about how water has been enclosed through dams and privatization. Um, I mean, so much of the world's water now is is sold, is bottled and sold. I mean, Pepsi buy, gets its water from Lake Michigan and sells it to us. Um, the the Vendi owns much of the water rights throughout Latin America. Um, so people have to buy their water that used to just be considered flowing freely. Um, and then seeds. Um, that for millennia have been, I mean, seeds are, are an abundance of nature. They are a gift of nature that each plant provides it, its own material to be planted again the next year and to grow again the next year. But with the Western concept of intellectual property rights, seeds have been patented. And so it's, so it's become illegal for farmers to, to keep the seed from the crops that they grow because it is now patented. And so they have to buy it new every year from seed companies, which, you know, keeps them indebted in that respect. You can't just grow the the seeds that that you have saved. Um, and then she goes on to talk about how all other aspects of life are being enclosed, knowledge, culture, public services, health and education, um, anything that's patented, anything that is copyrighted, all of those things are um, things that have been made private. Um, that, in a form of enclosure. Uh, somebody's going to pro- yeah, and and then goes on to talk about how um, we not only have these goods been enclosed, but also enclosures of our minds that has closed us off from thinking otherwise. As you said, um, switching our thinking to regarding national parks um, as as a as a something that is not considered a waste, and to not have that land be cultivated, um, in, required us to shift a mindset for sure. But also, there they're also considered a national a national treasure you might say a national resource that has has developed a whole new industry called tourism um yeah uh, i was just reading about how tourism in death valley has gone crazy this year um almost destroying the national park because so many people have wanted to go and experience the heat um so, experience so the heat quite, are they crazy yeah <laughs> I know. oh wow wow um but but mostly that it that locked locked us into thinking that this system is the only right and correct one right um, and so well you know Beth, um, you're so reminding that ties into me how the, go ahead go ahead well, I just that's well, how I, the loss of the commons can lead to this, lead to the loss of the sense of the common good. Well, but go ahead. So, 
Well, you know, it, well, it, it really does um, all boil down. It, well, in my mind, I'm going that it all boils down to what I call today, you know, predator capitalism. And it makes me think about, um, you know, I had Richard Wolf on the show, um, you know, an, an, an economist, and he told me that um, it was very difficult for professors uh, to teach anything in college um, that would support any other economic system besides capitalism if they expected to get tenure. So, you know, capitalism was supposed to be played up and everything else played down. And, um, you know, so there, it's no wonder then when you think about it, we, you know, we aren't taught about this in school and we don't connect all of these dots, you know, to weave the tapestry, so to speak. That, that's true. Um, I certainly taught and was taught other things than capitalism in school. So I'm not sure um, that might vary from place to place. I certainly heard that was true during the McCarthy era in the 1950s. Um, you would, yeah, you, you simply couldn't have done that in the 1950s America. Um, and that may be, be, be becoming more true now as we're kind of heading back into that era, it seems. Um, but, uh, but I know so, in, if, you, if, you take the, if you study economics, what you're studying for the most part is capitalism, capitalist economics, um, and you might have one course on Marxist economics, for example. But all well, the think about when Bernie Sanders uh, was running against Hillary and how they demonized Bernie, uh, you know, because, you know, Bernie's, you know, I, I think was more about democratic socialism, and nobody really knew what it was. So it was easy to demonize it, even though it might have been better for more people. Yeah, socialism is still a red flag word in this country. And if you want to demonize any program, it's called socialism. I heard the same the same thing hurled at, at um, the Affordable Care Act, that it yeah. couldn't be good that it was socialism. Yeah. But so are our yeah. public schools. I, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, well, you know, I'm I'm fond of saying that after they pollute the air, they will all be selling us gas masks. You know, that'll mm. be the new commodity. Um, so, can you connect the dots, maybe a little bit clearer, to um, how oh. this plays into? Uh, well, first of all, what is the common good? You know, if you can sort of define it for maybe somebody's a little murky, um, and 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 then how you know what we've been talking about is a lead up to um, our, you know, uh, how, how we've sort of lost that sense of that should be a priority in in our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, the common good, um, those things that would be of benefit to all. And I think um, if, you, if you look at some of the, the newer constitutions around the world, you will have a sense of that, the right to um, clean air, the right to clean water, the right to um, health care, um, of education, the, these types of things that would all be seen as being good for all, um, certainly having a clean environment, of having clean water, of having a climate that supports life, rather than one that is that we are quickly about to fall a cliff of, um, would be things that would be benefit beneficial to everyone. Um, I'm, I'm sure there might be some disagreement from some people about what's good for everybody, but I think those some of those basics that are that are hard to disagree with that those would be good. Well, for I everyone. take it even. I, I mean, I take it even further and say free energy, um, maybe even universal basic sure. um, income. You know. Um, right. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so all right. So those would be the common good. 
Um, and and so this Those idea that benefit of inc- everyone. Yeah, the things that benefit everybody, the idea that all of our boats mm-hmm. float and rather than the income disparity that we have or the dominator pyramid that Rianne Eisler talks about with the billionaires at the top and the rest of us at the bottom fighting mm-hmm. for the scraps. Um, so that's the common good idea. Um, and we think this idea of enclosure may be led to losing that sense uh, because we got sort of conditioned into thinking everything should be a commodity. That's part of it. Um, I just, in my, I've been, as I became aware of uh, a new science exploring the experience of awe, I started connecting other dots um, because then the word waste comes from the Latin word for vast. And at some point, what was considered to be vast and expansive instead became regarded to be as waste. Um, But as I said, there is a new science about exploring the experience of awe and how it affects us. And it shows that the experience of vastness is at the very heart of the experience of awe. So I, let me tell you a little bit about that. Um, if people aren't aware um, of, of this new science, uh, there's a psychologist named Dr. Keltner um, who has been writing about this lately. He has a book out called Awe, um, and he and his collaborator, Yang Bei, asked 2,600 people in 26 countries around the world of the huge study, what is an experience of awe that you have had when you encountered a vast mystery that transcends your understanding of the world? world?" Um, And they found eight wonders of life. And I can enumerate those if you want, but... um, Sure, yeah, please do. Okay. Um, Things that consistently evoke the experience of awe. The first one was what they called moral beauty, and this was the one that more more than any other evoked awe. Other people's courage or kindness or strength, um, their ability to give of themselves to others. Um, um, The second one was what they called collective effervescence, which is the kind of sense of we that people have oftentimes at sports or political rallies, but also at weddings and graduations and collective celebrations. Uh, The third one is nature. I think that's the one that resonates the most for me, Um, just all the the many ways that we experience awe in nature. Um, This past spring, after we had the largest snow ever recorded, we also had the largest melt in the spring, and people traveled from miles and miles and miles to come see the waterfalls because they were so they wanted to have that experience of awe um the fourth is music a lot of it people experience awe listening to certain forms of music certain pieces the fifth is art uh, visual art Um, the sixth is spiritual and religious experiences the seventh is the moment of birth and the moment of death and finally the eighth was epiphanies uh, when we suddenly understand essential truths about life. Um, and in all of these, regardless of the source, the experience of awe followed a very distinct pattern. Vastness, mystery, and the dissolving of boundaries between the self and other sentient beings. And that, that sense of vastness can be physical, um, such as looking out over the vast expanse of the ocean. Um, I think people, I live by the largest lake in the world, and people travel, again, hundreds of miles just to be able to look out over the vastness of this incredible lake. Um, It can be standing beside tall trees. I think that's what people experience in the redwoods. Um, Or gazing up at at a starlit sky um, and being able to, that we just went through the Perseid meteor shower and all the people who will go out into the middle of the night just to watch the 
falling stars, um, or it can be just the the vastness of a of a operatic singer's voice. Um, it can be something that transports you back in time, such as a a piece of music or or a particular smell. Um, these are kinds of things that are experiences of of vastness, and uh, it varies from culture to culture. It can be mountains, it can be plains, um, it can be an infant just experiencing the vastness of of being held by by their parent. Um, so the the varieties of vastness are myriad, but the the quality of vastness is crucial to the experience of awe. Um, and the reason why that's important with for the loss of the common good is that when people experience awe, they are more open to new ideas, they are more curious, they are more thoughtful, they are more generous, they are more kind, they're more willing to put aside their self-interest in favor of others, which is crucial to that sense of the common good. They're less prone to political polarization, which is really destroying our sense of the common good in this country right now. Um, they're less likely to experience anxiety and depression. They are more likely to experience joy. And all of these things, um, being more open, more curious, more generous, more self-giving, um, are vital to having a sense of the common good. Well, you know, I, I wish there was a way for us to press a button and make this conversation just go gobsmack viral. <laughs> you know, um, I, I mean, when I read your article in the Feminism and Religion blog, which listeners, please go look for it. There's so many wonderful, um, thoughtful, intelligent, insightful, wise women like uh, Beth Bartlett here who write there, and uh, they really just make you think. And when I saw your your article, Beth, I thought – and I'm getting goosebumps now. I, I thought, you know, this could be part of our solution, you know, to save the world. But I don't know how to, you know, to put it on, uh, you know, how, how do you serve that up? You know, how do you make that widespread? And I, I guess mm-hmm. I, I wonder how, what you thought about how to, you know, develop this this sense of the appreciation for for awe or vastness or develop a sense of the common good how do we get back to that as being something important and it's not just greed is good that we became brainwashed with you know a couple decades ago i guess i'd say more than a couple decades ago that goes back to adam smith actually in the 1700s he tried to find a way to make greed good and so that's how he came up with the whole notion of the wealth of nations the invisible hand that if we if we um if we are the greedier we are the more we that will create wealth that will trickle down to um to the lowest of the low economically um which is your trickle down theory of economics that we got with reagan but um, Which doesn't but work. I, I have, well, but wait. Let me ask you about that. Right. Though, how? So, so mm-hmm. did Adam? So that idea of Adam and Smith fight the Christian Adam idea Smith, that yeah. used to be, greed. You know, as greed being one of the seven deadly sins. Um, he was uh, a moral sense theorist, and he was trying to make something good of something bad. I think he saw that that greed is just part of human nature, and let's see if anything good can come of it. And that's, mm. I mean, he, he wasn't, wasn't a bad sort. <laughs> um, he he was trying to, as I say, make something good out of something that he thought as inevitable in human nature. Um, whether it is or not, I, I doubt. I think it was, um, you know, that it's been encouraged. Um, and this was, you know, something he saw around him and said, how can we make this into a good thing? How can this be a good mm. thing? And so that's how we came up with that theory that has underlined so much of capitalism. But um, 
But well, that, back uh, to your well I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. I don't okay. mean to, well, uh, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> go ahead. Right. Yeah, I, I have to give a lot of credit to Dr. Keltner and his colleagues at at even exploring this topic and and what they learned from this. I mean, I simply connected some dots, um, maybe some dots that he hadn't connected, but he does see it as that um, he has, um, he's developed a whole um, program for, um, for giving people experiences of vastness. And uh, so he does this. <laughs> he has workshops. He, he um, and as self-help books mainly, uh, not not the book, but I mean certainly programs that of um, of taking regular time to experience awe and um, and and so that's part of. I mean that's one thing we can do. I think is is to to take time for that. Um, I I can give you an example um, of something that I have found hopeful that connects some of these thoughts. Um, Please do. And that's the work of a biologist uh, named Janine Benyus. Um, And she has a particular... um, design discipline that she calls biomimicry, um, where she takes the natural world as the teacher, very much like the indigenous peoples um, of this land um, hold as their premise for our relationship with nature, that the natural world is is our teacher. And so she sees this as a radical new approach, and it is um, that um, rather than extracting what we can from nature, instead we learn from nature. And it is in doing so that though these engineers and farmers and um, builders and architects also experience a high degree of awe. It's a whole different approach to um, the way we create our world. Um, So much of the engineering and the farming and and the building of the past has been about dominating nature, Um, about, as I said, adding pesticides and herbicides to the land and of damming rivers and straightening them out and dredging them and um, just taking and taking and taking, extracting ores. Um, and you know, in this era of fossil fuels, the last thing we need to be doing is extracting, but that is that whole mindset of domination that instead that uh, we go about um, learning from nature and designing systems and uh, and whole ways of building things um, and creating new um, ways of drawing energy, for example, um, by learning from from nature. She gives the example of a of a desalination engineer who went to visit a mangrove swamp where the mangroves uh, desalinate the water. And and he's watching this and he's crying because he never realized that plants already know how to desalinate the water. And so learning how the plant does this can give us a better understanding. Um, and he just said he was just overcome with chills and awe. And if we just tap into the awesome ways that 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 nature already has so much wisdom that we can also experience that awe but also understand that that this is part 
of the common good. Um, I went to a workshop years and years ago um, with uh, a Native American elder who was saying that if there was one thing that we, she wished we could learn from plants, it was how we could photosynthesize. Um, I mean, plants are amazing. They draw their food and create their food just from sunlight and water. Um, and saying if we could just learn how to do that, and I think that's part of what we're learning how to do in the creation of photos photosynthesis cells um, in solar cells and solar energy is part of learning how to photosynthesize, but it's not exactly creating food that way, but it's a kind of a roundabout way um, yeah. of doing that. So, <clears throat> Well, could you, um, could you repeat the name of that, um, the book that inspired you to write the article about awe and vastness that inspired this whole conversation today? Sure. The book was simply called Awe. That was it. Okay. That was okay. the title. It's Awe. And, and the, the author, Keltner. last name, Keltner. Keltner. K-E-L-T-N-E-R. Okay. Well, um, Beth, we're about out of time here, and um, I want to give you, you know, an, another minute or two. Is there anything we haven't had a chance to cover that might be important to add to this uh, idea we've been exploring today? I would say, you know, basically following up on the last question you asked me, um, that changing the way we think, removing the enclosures of our mind, uh, does require a paradigm shift. And we do have that choice um, to regard our role as humans on this earth as not to improve nature, but to be improved by it. It requires humility um, to learn from and live in harmony with nature, the rest of nature. We are nature. Um, And remove those enclosures of our minds. Take time to appreciate vastness. um, Rather than devastate, to revastate, I guess is the way I would put it. Um, And by doing that, we become more often open to new ideas, to differences. I often think how different this this country, this continent would be had the people who came here been instead of dominating and assuming their own supremacy had instead just been struck by awe of the peoples living on this land and of the magnificent forests and and wildlife that were throughout this continent and and opened their minds in curiosity and learned rather than just assuming their supremacy and dominating and taking it all. Uh, it just, yeah. It gives me pause how different we, that this country might be and that we still have a chance to do that. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, I think so. That, um but these conversations are important to, um, you know, to, um, you know, rather, you know, to, to um, open our minds rather than have, uh, as, mm-hmm. as you said before, you know, our, our minds sort of trapped in the enclosure of uh, how we've always done things. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I would encourage your listeners to, to begin just by taking regular moments for awe. Whatever it is that yeah. gives them that experience of that, whether it be being out in nature or listening to pieces of music, particular beautiful pieces of art, um, or just the the generosity of of the moral good. Um, yeah. And, uh, well, thank you, Beth. Um, thank you for the article on the Feminism and Religion blog that inspired this conversation. And thank you for taking the time today to walk us through this, you know, this, this um, I don't know, these mental calculations, these theories, these, uh, these dots we've connected today. <laughs> that is very much about connecting the dots. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time thank as you, always. Karen. All right, bye-bye. I appreciate being with you. Bye-bye.
And, you know, I guess if I were to add anything to the conversation before we run out of time here, it, uh, you know, I wish Christianity could uh, chuck the prosperity gospels and go back to greed is, uh, you know, one of the, you know, uh, what was it, seven deadly sins. Uh, That would certainly help. And I'm also reminded of Eric Fromm. Uh, I think he wrote a book in the 40s. It was about... um, Uh, having versus being or being versus having and he talked about if we valued ourselves or judged ourselves not by our assets but the service we are to humanity what a difference things would make Um, uh, well uh, hang on uh, hold that thought uh, ponder some of these things we've been talking about uh, because I have a word from Joe Carson for you Hello, let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is Drusilla Pettibone on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. Thank you, Joe Carson, for uh, telling us about uh, Dancing with Gaia. And um, I want to thank listeners. Uh, I know you have uh, so many choices these days uh, for podcasts. Uh, I hope that uh, uh, you will continue coming back and uh, appreciate the, the unusual topic. Um, you know that we actually cover here that uh, uh, you might not uh, hear other places and uh, as far as Dancing with Gaia I do want to mention that um, that DVD comes uh, packaged with a 45 page color mini book which goes even deeper into the material and you can buy the DVD and the booklet I believe for only $9.95 at uh, dancingwithgaia.com so uh, yeah I want to make sure you have that additional information so um, anyway uh, I think that about does it uh, for me for today listeners Uh, I want to encourage you to go to the Divine Feminine app and hear about um, other uh, sacred feminine goddess oriented things happening in your neighborhood and around the world and uh, please do go to my website Karen Tate dot net do me a, you know do me a favor buy a book uh, make a donation uh, buy me a cup of coffee if uh, you appreciate the work I'm doing in the world uh, the radio show uh, is not a money maker it's a service to the community and uh, if any of my work has uh, benefited your life uh, please do uh, either you know give me a shout out let me hear your appreciation or um, you know uh, buy me a cup of coffee occasionally. You can go down to the bottom of my webpage at karentate.net and click a button, and it's as simple as that. So, 
we will close the show today as we do uh, every week with a um, homage to Sepmet, lion-headed Egyptian goddess who teaches women to say no without guilt and have healthy boundaries. Here she is. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary BDW void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus